0: Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Mia Hadera is a California-born, Pacific Northwest-based sculptor, folklore enthusiast, writer, and occult practitioner, operating a blog dedicated to folkloric witchcraft in the Americas, modern animism, and sacred art. Growing up in a multicultural and spiritually diverse community, she dedicates her time to the study of traditional witchcraft practices, ancestor veneration, and all things magical. Her book, Folkloric Witchcraft and the Multicultural Experience, A Crucible at the Crossroads, is one witch's love letter to the presence of animism and magic in the Americas and details not only her personal relationship to folk magic, but her love of shared magical experiences between diverse peoples via hedera welcome to witchlet thank you for having me i'm happy to be here i'm excited to have you on i so enjoyed your book i reread it again because it's been a while and um just enjoyed it all over again thank so, you so much it's good to have you on. so since we're a podcast about writing even though you do tons of other things our first question for everybody is why write why write i have a spiritual fascination with the written word
1: Um, I don't think mankind has done anything more of note than creating a way to speak and communicate with one another, Uh, whether it's language or visual arts or music or writing. I feel like this need to give birth to ideas and communicate them with people. And I feel this intrinsic need to find the the points which people meet in harmony. And I find that writing is this point, much like music, that people are instantly drawn to because it's, it's something that can communicate across uh, continents across language groups across spiritualities it can it, it changes the way people see each other and the world around them the way they uh, imagine their future and and perceive the past and those connections i think are so powerful and human i kind of just i have to indulge in it it's <laughs> kind of a more of a compulsion than a passion
0: <laughs> yeah yeah, I think that's I, I feel like the compulsion is consistent for a lot of writers. It's just the thing we have to do. Or we get weird.
1: Absolutely. We <laughs>
0: wow. It's
1: a pressure that has to be sort of addressed at some point. I think yeah. ideas are a lot like that, where you have to give birth to it and you have to bring it into the world to exist or sometimes the fear of losing it is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of why I write is I, I cannot bear the idea of losing these imagined, <laughs> these, reali- these realities I've made for myself or these ones I'm indulging. And in. I just don't want to lose those parts of them. So putting them down somewhere where I can communicate it to people and pass it on is really important for me.
0: Yeah. So what did your professional writing journey look like? So you started blogging before you published the book. So what did kind of moving from blogging to published book look like? You
1: know, I, I had done a lot of, like, smaller time writing, um, mostly for, like, uh, college editorials and stuff. And I was told by a couple of my instructors that I should really try my hand at expressing uh, something that I'm I'm really passionate about. And I just had this, I don't know, I was, there was a lot of time at work. There was a lot of... Um, just sort of passion running through me where I thought I have something to say. And my blog has been trying to say all of this, but I kind of just want to put it somewhere where I can distribute it to the world where everybody can see it. I need to talk to people. And that's mostly what it felt like is I, I was... I had met so many people through my blog and I was astounded at how often people said that they felt lonely when it came to uh, multiculturalism within the witchcraft and occult communities, that it can be just such an isolating place for people who come from diverse backgrounds. And I don't mean just racially diverse. I mean, multi-spiritual households, multi-religious households, um, just the differences that all families have that look like different um look like different things. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to me to, to try to communicate with people. And I had felt so lonely about it. Like I, I didn't meet a lot of other people who felt um, like multiculturalism was being well represented when it's such a huge part of what witchcraft is and has developed to be, especially in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I had this this need all of a sudden to make my some of the focuses of my blog, the more popular entries into a solid book Uh, talking about all these different subjects and how fascinating I find witchcraft in America and why it's why it's amazingly multicultural and and why it's something that touches every aspect of the world um, and takes a little part of it and has forged something altogether unique and wanting to sort of get that idea out to people started this and I just sat down and wrote obsessively for a few months and surrounded myself with stacks and stacks of books and talked to Corey and talked to Aaron Oberon and talked to different people about all the the amazing folklore and, and the world we live in. And I just, I just had to get it out and there it was. And I submitted it to Moon Books, um, who I was introduced to through my friend Morgan and they had told me about it and I had applied and instantly it was kind of, fun that moment books was like you know this is going to be this is an interesting idea it's not an idea we've had yet somebody with this very specific kind of niche focus and I found them extremely supportive um so I was I was pretty happy with that Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was was like an immediate just like within a few months just rolled out kind of journey but I had been working on most of this material for years on the blog
0: yeah it was really kind of like a compiling of all of that information with the yes definitely
1: so, some of it's almost almost word for word a lot of it was just stuff that people were like uh, um writers who had written back to me had said you know I wish you would elaborate a little bit more on this and so mm-hmm. I kind of went with that idea and ran with it
0: yeah I, two of the things that I think I find really striking about the book I mean for anyone who hasn't read it um it's it's a slim volume but a, a percentage of it is like the footnotes <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just a very heavily footnoted work so you've got um, it's just a great book for rabbit holes. Um, there's just like every footnote is like a possibility to go down a rabbit hole kind of situation. So I think um, you, you can tell that there's a lot of time over the, you know, it's deceptively slim volume. Let's put it that way.
1: <laughs> it is. And I love rabbit holes. And that's sort of, you know, I just, those are my favorite research books are the ones where it's like, Oh, well, well, damn, now I have like 50 more questions from the one question I came here to get answered. And I love it. It's an mm-hmm. addiction. And the more you learn and the more you share with other people and oh, I love it. It's such a weird expression, but it's a like, it's like writing. It's super compulsive <laughs> the yeah. research part.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I write fiction and I still find that um, a lot of my time is spent on the research part and maybe more time procrastinating the writing part to just do more research. Yep, absolutely. (laughs) That would be my, (laughs) my thing too. Uh, So I, one of the things I think is interesting because your book came out, Corey Thomas Hutchins book came out, um, Aaron Oberon's book came out. So there's been like this kind of surge in writing about American folklore and folkloric witchcraft. And I was just curious what, what you think, why are we in this wave of this happening? Like, what do you, what do you think the impetus for this is?
1: You know, I think people, um, I think folk witchcraft just, it existed the whole time. We, it was a strong community for a long time, but it was such a niche community. It wasn't, it wasn't the hot popular thing. Uh-huh. It wasn't the well-known thing. We were a really small community and extremely supportive of all of each other. And I think one of the people who sort of had the most popular influence um on it on the popularity of folk witchcraft, um, especially online, was Sarah Lawless. Um, and I think those of us who've been following her for a long time and those of us who had fallen within similar spiritual groups and um different community groups, we sort of I think we sort of just took uh, a lot of heart from her bravery of, of sort of coming forward with the raw witchcraft, the wild witchcraft, the folk, gritty, animistic witchcraft. And then there were more animistic witches who were like writing back to her. And most of us, you know, had sort of connected through her work or through Nakia Seeds or other um, really early bloggers on folk witchcraft. And I think we all wound up being so supportive of each other that we really wanted to have this wave happen. We were all, you know, um, most of us had talked at some point online and become friends, struck up friendships, um, following each other on Instagram or on blogger and stuff. And the more we shared information, the more we realized we had to share information. Mm -hmm. We needed to share information. And I think it, it gave way to this beautiful sort of popular wave of people who had already been practicing folk witchcraft this whole time coming out and saying it. I also think that for a long time witchcraft meant something it had a very specific connotation, I think, when especially when I was growing up. When people thought witchcraft, they thought Wicca, thought charm, thought white light. They thought this very specific kind of media. Mm-hmm. And what witchcraft looked like for a lot of us practicing it was just this everyday gritty thing. It was, you know, throwing salt over the shoulder. It was, um, you know, keeping up grandma's recipe and saying the same blessing on the bread that she did. It was just a simple part of life that we were we started to realize uh, as we all started writing more about it on our blogs and stuff, we were all sharing and indulging in these very similar uh, practices, This, this expression of magic that exists every day in every little form all around us and i believe that sort of spurred this beautiful um change that allowed people to feel like they could express themselves and express what folk witchcraft looks like to them because it's a very open space you can be a folk witchcraft of any variety you could be a christian folk witch or a pagan folk witch. Mm -hmm. you could you can there's a lot more room in folk witchcraft and uh the expression of the occult community now than i think there ever has been back when the conversation was very limited and i kind of love it i kind of love how it exploded in every direction now there's every kind of practitioner that you can find with incredible information to share
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i reading your book and thinking about like how how many things are you know though there are unique, unique things you know regionally in the u.s and north america um but like how many things overlap and partly you point out because we're a, you know we're not a rooted people like people move away from their family they you know i grew up in east tennessee and now i live in california you know like just it's you take those things with you and partly they just grew up the same like people just had the same idea across time and space for the same kind of things and i think that pointing that out is really fascinating to me and um was one of the things I, I loved in each chapter of the book, this idea of like, oh, you know, we're different, but we're the same.
1: Absolutely. And that was sort of, you know, it was the core values within my family, which is heavily adopted, adoption based and heavily mixed and extremely large. It was this idea that our similarities should be celebrated and our differences are equally worthy of celebration, that the mm-hmm. past is a beautiful and ugly place, but it's where we come from. Yeah. And that is a path we are all taking. None of us gets out of that.
0: Yeah. And I do wonder if part of, like, I kind of wonder if part of the resurgence in the public eye, like you said, I think it's been going on the whole time, but like the public resurgence of kind of this folkloric um, witchcraft and, and you know, local superstition and things like that. Because I, I do think that, you know, there was this time when, especially uh, in the 80s and 90s, when people are like, we'll just take whatever we want and it's fine and we'll just make this soup of witchcraft that you know we don't need to tell you where it's from we're just going to do it and and people are like re-examining that and I think that it seems to be feeding into that trend and I think it's a good thing to see because I do think it's important and you point this out of the book there's a massive difference between appreciation and appropriation Absolutely, authenticity has everything to do with that,
1: and I love that this move towards animistic folk religion and folk magic promotes the idea of staying authentic to where you grew up, where you come from, and also what you know and what you respect and have come to learn. There's space for all of that. All of it has its 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 equal parts, and it's it's all about the authenticity factor. And I I, I think you're right. Um, I think the more that people over time have pointed out how much we can, f- uh, you know, flip steal and appropriate um, ideas for our own benefit, especially monetary benefit for some people, Um, and how dangerous that can be to stifle the creativity and voices and independence of the people who originally create art and create language and spiritual systems. I love that the answer to that within the witchcraft community was going back to the roots that we know as individuals and also opening the doorway to say, you know, in, a, in especially in North America in the Americas itself, the kind of history we had necessitates a level of synch- synchronicity mm-hmm. and um, syncretism. It, it's the way religion developed here because it couldn't have developed into your, any other kind of way. That's This is the circumstances. This yeah. is what happens when you do have slavery, when you do have a colony, and when you put together every kind of person in the world, you get a influx of every kind of possible spirituality, political belief, um, ethnic mixing of customs, mores. It's beautiful to me. And yes, it's a horrifying history, but it's also exactly where I come from. And without it, I wouldn't exist. And people Mm -hmm. like me, millions of Americans like me wouldn't exist. So it's kind of like a a humbling place to see how many people are, are looking back at history and choosing a really positive path, uh path forward
0: Mm -hmm. with magic now i i agree and and i think it is you know talking to people from europe about witchcraft like i do think sometimes they look at us like we're a little insane you know like how you know why would you call yourself a german american sweet you know blah blah blah. i was like well because (laughs) Like that's where my ancestors came from. That's where their ancestors came from. You know, it's or you know their ancestors or you know like a lot of people who were brought um, because of slavery. Like they don't know where their ancestors are from. I mean, they have Western Africa, but not yeah. the specific ideas of where those people came from. And I'm just like, you know, Europe is different. <laughs> I'm like trying to explain that it is it, America has its own culture but it is a mishmash and that is different i mean those mishmashes happened in europe a longer time ago so they're not as you know in people's memory of their family coming absolutely i have that
1: conversation a lot with people um who who are outside the u.s who are like sort of flabbergasted by the lack of history i have as a as a black person you know like they're you know as especially when you're mixed they're like how do you not know how did you not how do you not know where in Africa your ancestors came from and I'm like that was a few hundred years we were (laughs) it's not like they kept records for slaves or if they did they destroyed them (laughs) they destroyed them and it's not like there's the systemic rooting out of everything having to do with their Africanness Mm -hmm. in order to make them compliant slaves, in order to subjugate human beings. And so I think it's sort of, it's different here for those of us who grew up in America. It's it's a conversation we have been having since the day we're born. We are constantly aware of this conversation going on here. And so I think maybe from the outside, the perspective can be a little strange and, and uh, it looked like our history's cut off from ourselves. And in many ways, Americans are iconoclastic. We do love to destroy old things and build new fresh right on top whenever we can um (laughs) but in this way it's just such a a, there's such a complexity to our history that's uh, it's astounding astounding Mm -hmm. the the conversations that we have to have with one
0: another about it
1: (laughs) across
0: across the sea across the sea yeah and i do think you know one of the things i think about you know people who chose to come were the kind of people who would leave right right you know so like people who had a choice to come to america came for certain reasons and then then you have a whole nother influx of people who could come as refugees or for asylum who maybe didn't want to come but this was the best option so there's like all of these different ways to come to the united states or north america or you know whatever it is in the permutation where your family came and um you know those That's a a lot of complex emotions for a lot of people to sort through who they are, where they're from and why they're here.
1: And they're all valid stories, which is Mm -hmm. something I, had, you know, try to push in the book a little bit was these are all real and valid stories, just because they are dirty stories with ugly histories doesn't mean we all, every family, every human has skeletons in the closets of their ancestors. (laughs) I dread, I dread to think of what really exists out there. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, that's part of why I wrote the book is I wanted this space of dialogue and for people to know, hey, fellow, fellow mixed race or complicated history, American witch out there. I feel you. I get it. I also love this country and the weird stuff that came out of it. I find the whole bizarre nature of it fascinating and Mm -hmm. beautiful. Yeah. It's created an amazingly large family for me to choose from, millions of people.
0: And I love that. Yeah. And I do think, I don't, I mean, there is, there's kind of this aspect of like, I personally am not capable of undoing 500 years of history. Like, I kind of have to live with it. And the best way to do that is accept that. Yeah. You, like you said, it's, there's a lot of dirt and a lot of really ugly, horrific things that we've done to each other in the past, but it has brought us to this place where we can examine that and look at it. And like you said, choose a better way forward from here. Yes,
1: And all that, all that really matters to me is the most is having the conversation. Mm-hmm. The more people can, and that's all like what I said, I I, I just wanted to communicate. And I, I find when you communicate with people, God, you can rip down so many barriers, You don't have to disagree. We don't even have to understand, but just to keep that dialogue open and be willing to listen is the most important, important thing, I think.
0: Um, So in your research, did you talk to a lot of different people or was it mostly like, uh, I guess, written research, published research?
1: Well... It was sort of a mishmash of both. I do I, mostly. I, I did a lot of book research because that was where I was finding more information about where the worlds meet was in the mm-hmm. relics of American folklore. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to start there and see where these uh, folklores and history were picking up. Uh, their information. Where, where, where were these regions? Who were the people there? And how did it spread? How how are uh, facets of Deep South magic found in the Northwest? How has it moved and migrated with the migration of Americans over the last few hundred years? And how has it changed us, changed our, our, our history? And so finding that, and I think it was far better to try to look through books, to try to trace where folklorists were picking that up. Where was these hard line connections that they saw?
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: people, I love oral history, but people, we're playing telephone with each other and <laughs> our, <laughs> you know, whatever story we're telling is our version of the story. And so what I liked to do to do was start with talking to people in my family and in my community about folklore they had heard. And then write it down and I would just go straight down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. You know I had one instructor um, at my place of work tell me about pins and needle folklore in Illinois and I thought you know I don't really know a lot about Illinois. I don't know a lot about the midwestern sort of uh, branches of magic as they developed and he was like you really should look into it. You should look into the kinds of people that lived there. He was telling me about the pin and needle folklore of his uh, his aunt and he was Italian American. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized there was pins and needle folklore everywhere. And I was already familiar with it through hoodoo mm-hmm. and um, Southwest witchcraft practices. And then it became this explosion of pins and needles everywhere. Every, <laughs> every culture you look at's got pins that's stabbing something like a doll or, or something yeah. with a needle. And I loved that. I love that you could talk to any person and then hear one little line, one little story, and then find just volumes of research about mm-hmm. it and sort of find where it kind of crossed into my life already. Um, so that was pretty much the process was, you know I start, you start with talking to somebody and just get this spark of an idea and then just go full on in the library.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I love that idea of like, like you said, pins and needles everywhere, but partly because people had to make clothes. You know, mm-hmm. that was just a tool that every culture had at some point. Yes. To, you know, to practical. either hold their clothes together or sew them or, you know, like all of the things around um, clothing and sewing magic I find fascinating. I think most folk magic comes out of necessity
1: from some practical mm-hmm. thing. It's, it usually has some sort of real world connection that makes a, a certain level of sense, even when it's a silly level of sense. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, you know, like that—what throwing salt over your shoulder for the devil? I mean, that seems like I—I'm I'm not sure where that started, but it makes sense when you think of like at some point, salt was incredibly valuable. So spilling it was a bad thing, right? We don't think about it now. Like, if you spill salt, you just sweep it up. But when it was something that was hard to come by, when you were paid in salt, absolutely—that's a whole different thing. Yes. Interesting, uh, so what, um, in doing your research, like was there anything particularly that you uh, just kind of found yourself to <laughs> i guess stuck in the rabbit hole of wanting to f- find these things out or were were there anything in particular that just really stuck out for you?
1: yes, i <laughs> by the time I started getting to hexing i I realized that I' had a really fascinating childhood with the amount of hexing and curses that. <laughs> <laughs> grew up seeing and I didn't realize it until I was doing more research and I was like, my God, some vindictive people in my family <laughs> but I loved it it was just the more I found the more I realized that that is. The most prevalent form of magic that I've ever found that isn't other than healing, healing, anything related to healing the body, healing the soul and the spirit, cleansing the body and the soul and the spirit, that might be the most popular form of magic, but next to that hexing, Mm -hmm. because everyone is doing it, and there are a million ways to do it, you can grind up scorpions and feed it to your lover, you can wash his socks in your urine, you can do all sorts of nonsense, incredibly weird, bizarre things, or it just it, i mean revenge it really is a dish best served cold i guess because some <laughs> of these spells are so cold they are just so mean and i realized that hexing is this incredible expression of like human rage mm-hmm. And, and uh, pettiness of and pettiness too. Oh, absolute pettiness! Just, <laughs> just so petty. And you know the part of me that, on occasion, would watch like Basketball Wives or something, kind of, <laughs> kind <laughs> of relishes that, that pettiness. And um, I the more I researched it, the more I realized that I was really into hexes. And even though I myself personally do not uh get into that form of magic very often. I have a huge respect and fascination for it. Now that I know how many cultures um, agree that you should fuck somebody up magically when they, when they mess your shit up. (laughs) And I really respect that, that us humans can come together over so many things, whether it's love Mm -hmm. or hate.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I I think one of the favorite things I remember reading is like when they found all of the curse tablets in Bath in England, and like on the little lead folded pieces, one of them was like cursing someone for stealing their towel. I mean, it was like, that's some, that's some petty bullshit to curse right? someone over, but apparently. I love it. You know? Yeah. I mean, like, there you go.
1: <laughs> keep them on their toes. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I am grateful to the, um, I guess the desire for humans to continue to build, to keep finding weird stuff like this.
1: <laughs> Me too.
0: Um. So, did you have like any access issues with research, or like I know, like doing something this broad that's basically across North America? Like, were there any trouble? And did you have any trouble with access?
1: No. Um. You know, in my mundane life, uh, I I work at a higher education institution, and my job, uh working at administration and and event coordination gives me access to the uh, university and Seattle college's library system. Mm -hmm. So I get, I get a lot more access to, uh, archives and library resources because I work in higher education um, at the state employee level. So being able to go in and get anything that I needed, being able to access parts, um, you know, use access passes to get into archives at UW and at SU and to use my connections through the higher level universities and the Seattle colleges was able, I had incredible access to instructors and professors, people I could just ask, you know, have you ever heard of this or what do you know about folk? more and have them sort of spark my interest or point me in the right direction or tell me what book. It was great to have a, a higher education library um, attached to my office. You know, my office is in the same building as it. So oh, I can nice. just walk over and go pick up, you know, 30 or, or 30 or more ethnographies of these different groups around America Mm -hmm. and take them home, um, with my access pass. So I didn't, I, I wound up having a lot more access than I think a lot of people do, especially through my family, since they are so large, so diverse, very well connected within their different communities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since we're, um, highly communicative like that and we take a lot of pride in talking about history and, and the places that we all came from it was really easy to have people just t- tell me stories it was easy, easy to sit yeah. auntie down and buying her some coffee and hearing her <laughs> stories about what she grew up hearing about and yeah. you know why does our family do certain things that other families don't do and so i'd say um i actually was blessed with an overabundance of access that i still get to have today mm-hmm. um and I'm really grateful that higher education exists and offers that kind of access to people who just live their life attached to research. Um, yeah. I get to just go hang out with the researchers and pick their brain and, and it's kind of a, I don't know, I think it's a it's a really great privilege and I'm really grateful for it.
0: Yeah, All right. that higher um, education access is pretty amazing. I um, I think sometimes like I had it good in grad school and I didn't realize how good I had it. access to those kind of things. It's much harder to get outside academia. It's really hard for the lay person to get academic access.
1: Oh, and volunteering is a huge part. When you come in and you volunteer to help people uh, sort papers, Um, volunteer to help some of these TAs in the research department sort Mm -hmm. their stuff when you volunteer your services and you just want to get information um, the easy way instead of trying to communicate over email and make it all official I I find that that was a really fun part of it was on a friend level Mm -hmm. um, coming in and being like yeah okay how can I get how can I help you and how can you help me yeah (laughs) And then when they come across something, they're like, oh, you know who would be interested in this? <laughs> that happens all. I will get constant yeah. t- emails, texts, even over my work email. Now, did you hear about this? This is happening. Also, there's going to be a workshop on professional development day if you want to go to it. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. that's awesome. I can awesome. travel yeah. opportunities for this now. And I'm really appreciative of it.
0: Yeah. So now that the book is out in the world, I, I can't imagine that this has stopped for you because this is this is a rabbit hole you could go down the rest of your life. So what are your goals like for your writing and research at this point?
1: Right now, I am dragging my feet on my second book. I have been touched with a tad bit of ennui. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it
0: possibly a, a, a pandemic race? Race?
1: <laughs> Yeah, for the last, I don't know, two years. <laughs> Um so once the pandemic hit I just sort of took a step back and I wanted to do things that were a lot more uh comforting to myself and I started writing more of the sci-fi and fantasy that I just write for myself for my own edification just to make myself feel better and it'll be I mean it's thousands of pages now <laughs> of a book that I never intend anyone to see um when I really wish that I had stuck to uh working on my second book, um, in this whole folklore realm that I'm mm-hmm. working on. Uh, but the goal is to complete this book because I have the, illu- I have an illustrator who has done some incredible art, Andrew uh-huh. Jimenez, who did the book cover, um, mm-hmm. for Folklore American Witchcraft. And, um, he did a lot of the illustrations. He's the illustrator of my logo. Um, he's a fabricator for my modeling work and he does, you know, he's like this fascinating artist that I've worked with for years and he's done some great artwork for it. And the theme of the book is about um, a particular kind of which is familiar that doesn't get a lot of love and popularity in my opinion, but is an animal that I love and find very uh, extremely comforting to be around. Yeah. And when I was doing research for the first book, I could not believe how much I found about this particular which is familiar and how um, it translated between Europe and America in this way and so many cultures hold this particular animal in such high regard and it's it's such an unassuming innocent little beast and i'm hoping that i can finish this book within the next two months and have it submitted to my publisher in the hopes that it's 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 Mm -hmm. gonna be what i'm looking for but it's been when you say rabbit hole you're not kidding
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah sometimes you get stuck down in those burrows yes definitely Um, are you publishing with Moon again or, um, you
1: know, I have multiple offers, but I, I really love Moon books. Um, I have multiple, you know, the, the, this one with the familiar that I'm working on is just one. I've got one on love magic, the history Mm -hmm. of just love magic in America, and mostly just the really funny and sadistic stuff um, that's a separate <laughs> book I've been working on that I'm really into, but I really want to get more authors in on it. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually and I'm, I'm looking forward to presenting that. And I'd like to submit that, um, to, uh, to some of the different offers that I've gotten, but I, it was, it started from a conversation, um, over at an in, inciting a riot. And we had talked about, you know, how fun it would be to compile a book of just some of the most heinous, most ridiculous sort of spells and charms that we found in folklore and it became the side project that I started working on of, of the most embarrassing horrific just nasty ass love spells just just, like,
0: just all the gross out that, body stuff. Like, yes, and there's I mean, so much you know, of that. Yeah, there's so
1: much of it, and you know, it, it goes back to some of the research I've done into Greek magic, which I found fascinating. The amount of corpses that got used in aphrodisiac spells. Um, <laughs> I thought, you know, I really mm-hmm. want to touch on how killer love and romance and sex can be in the magical yes. world.
0: <laughs> yes. yeah, uh, no, that is definitely the um when you open that door and you're like whoa i did not know that was hiding in there <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean I, I mean i meant what i said i love when stuff gets real petty and love spells oh there's just nothing mm. quite as petty as a love spell
0: yeah i mean i guess that those was the um, revenge and love is like all's fair and love and war there you go yeah. they, they just embrace that wholeheartedly and <laughs> take it with them <laughs> <laughs> so when you aren't in your rabbit burrow and you're having a good writing day, what does that look like for you? What's like a great writing day for you?
1: Oh God, I can, should not say this. <laughs> Do we need to knock on what wood a good or day? Um, No, honestly, it's just, um, I love it when work is really slow. And I can slip into the library for an extended lunch period and go into the private research rooms when, you know, there's no students around. They're Mm -hmm. all in class. I can slip in there for like an extended amount of time and write to my heart's content for a little over an hour. And there's times where I'll just stay late and use vacation time to achieve it. (laughs) But there um, midday is where I hit these huge bursts of energy and I have to get it out. It is I have to do it. And luckily, you know, I have I have a very understanding people around me who know that, you know, I'm I'm going to be is going to go disappear into the library <laughs> <laughs> for a little while and be buried under a book and it's not going to be on her email. <laughs> um, so for me, the best kind of writing day looks like that. And I get yeah. a lot of those days. And it's been it's been incredibly therapeutic.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny to me, like everyone's like energy. Center for writing seems different like you know I will never be one of those people who get up at four o'clock in the morning and write I'm just not that person but I appreciate people who are but I do think the thing that you touched on with that is that I think for a lot of people it's the ability to go somewhere where there's not distraction like I have worked at home for years and during the pandemic I lost my ability to go away from home to write because I would go to a coffee shop or something And right where it wasn't like, oh, I could just go put in a load of laundry or I could alphabetize the spice cabinet instead of writing, you know, like it's that I am in a place where writing is the only thing I can do. This is where my energy is focused and do that. So it makes sense to me that you would like link away toward nobody's nobody's there to disturb you. And there's nothing pressing on you except the writing.
1: Absolutely. I, I do so much better in a classroom sort of setting if I can um you know i hate working out of my living room sometimes because if there's a tv in there that's 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 the focus now Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) and um but you know when i when i can do it in the library what i can do is i can take these 12 or 30 books i can lay them all out on the exact page that i want on the table turn to a whiteboard and write down every single bit of information Mm -hmm. their page number and once i can write it all out and see the connection and that's that's really a lot of how the book got written was these these huge piles of books zoning in um with complete and utter focus for these these amounts of time and just compiling line Mm -hmm. after line of research and finding those connections drawing the web between them you know sort of like a detective um it was really fun and i kind of need that in order to to achieve what i've got to do
0: yeah and one of the things that i was thinking of reading your book and talking about like where you know the the places where you have like kind of a little index of where things came from, or like certain parts of the country that things are common. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to like, look at contemporary spell books and basically diagram them like a sentence, like this, you know, this spell that this author has written or compiled from, you know, where did all these pieces come from? Cause I guarantee you it's a, it's a soup and absolutely. i would i would love to see like i don't know like i just had this image of there there's i am giving it to the world someone else because i don't have time for this um <laughs> to write this <laughs> book of basically diagramming modern spells for where the pieces come from because i just thought oh yeah that would be a lot of research but be a lot of fun it would be so fun i would just love to see a tremendous absolutely
1: just a, a flow chart <laughs> yeah. that just leads down every single every single thread I, I would love that that's a great idea
0: yeah like let me get on that we want to read it <laughs> yeah I somebody am, yeah. somebody I ain't got time for that I <laughs> know they always say you know when you say you want to see a book it's your job to read it but like to write it but sometimes you you just can't do them all no that sounds like a multi-author job to be honest yeah that's like a compendium kind of yeah. as well in listening because they're good at companions I mean they're seriously they're brilliant at it this would be the best kind yeah that would be awesome do you have so I guess if the way you're writing I always ask people if they have which rituals around writing but it sounds like yours is just sneaking away but do you have other rituals <laughs> around writing
1: <laughs> um yeah typically the first thing that has to happen is um I gotta drink I gotta drink like a gallon of matcha <laughs> or coffee or Red Bull or something. Um, my favorite time, I think, is you get like when you're doing the early day stuff. I love just a, I don't know, a venti. venti matcha latte or something super powerful that'll just keep me staring like with really wide unblinking eyes so I don't miss any (laughs) research I love that but when it comes to the evening time when I really want to get descriptive and start telling stories um, I love the the ritual of sipping whiskey before I write and having like a nice stiff drink and then feeling all those creative, you know, all those inhibitions (laughs) loosen up and start to get into more of how storytelling looks in the cultures I come from, which is people sit around drinking and telling stories. And that's another aspect of writing for me is talking about the personal aspect of it, how it's affected my Mm -hmm. life and my family. And frankly, my family is only ever easy to talk about with a few drinks in you. So (laughs) um, yeah, it's part of the ritual.
0: (laughs) A little bit of sympathetic magic yeah yeah i like it i know i always think um i, I have a circle of brighter friends that we talk every week and um we we have often joked about the you know ernest hemingway write drunk edit sober and we're like maybe edit drunk because it's harder so. <laughs> editing is the part i hate the most yeah. yeah i think um i don't know i have yet well, no, I will take it back. I have talked to a couple writers who enjoy that, like the surgical part of editing, I personally do not enjoy it. I, I find have it really not difficult. enjoyed it. <laughs> no, no, it's, um, well, I tend to write brief, like I am never gonna, I, it will shock me if I ever write a doorstop, Stephen King, Anne Rice-sized novel. Like, that's just not how I write. So a lot of editing for me is sometimes, well, can you explain this more? And I was like, well, I thought I had, So like, <laughs> this is hard for me to go. Okay. I thought I explained it. Um, right. Instead of cutting mine is a lot more like chinking in things that, you know, the editor's like, I don't get this instead of exercising things out of it. And I'm like, maybe that's why I hate editing so
1: much. <laughs> uh, see, I have, I have grammatical and spelling issues mm-hmm. where I think I just speed read. And mm-hmm. so I miss a lot of things that I wish I could have gone on and been like, no, 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 that's not capitalized or no no no, that's not italicized. And um, but you know, that's something you you wind up learning as a new author, especially when you're working in smaller publishing groups. Um, you start to realize that you have to take a, a far more keen eye on the editing process. Even when it comes to stuff as basic as as um, italics and underlines and Mm -hmm. basic grammar and spelling, like I I had no idea how much more involved it would be. It's been quite the experience to learn since those are my weakest points.
0: Yeah, and I I think you know you touched on something I think is interesting. I think publishing, you know, self-publishing, independent publishing, publishing with small presses, it is a different experience. You are a lot more um, hands-on at every step of the way than I think authors who publish with like traditional big five or, you know, big four, whatever it is now, or big publishing houses overseas, like it's it's just a different experience.
1: Absolutely. Very frustrating, <laughs> um, especially if that's if the editing is the weak point and it's something that you have to be more hands on about. And I think mm-hmm. that was probably the largest challenge I, I faced in mm-hmm. the process of getting published was realizing that I, I would have to take a lot more charge over that in the future.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense to me, because it's um, it, my first book when it went to press. And i got it back there was a glaring typo on the first page that made me want to die and crawl under a chair
1: and um, me too yeah me too yeah when i saw that um eagles (laughs) had the capitalized in front of it the very end where i talked about how i like to rock out to the eagles Mm -hmm. (laughs) i was i was like no the greatest rock band in american history how did (laughs) i get that one now that i missed that
0: uh, my, is, my, it haunts me to my ever loving end yeah no i personally i do some editing um for publishing overseas i lived in slovenia for a while and inside i have contacts there and occasionally they'll ask me to do some some edit of english translations because that's what i worked on when i was there and um i did you know to this whole book everything went great and it goes to press and i did not edit my own bio because i sent it to them and then they somebody typed it into the thing and there was a there was a typo in my bio as the Ooh. editor and I was like great
1: I know yeah. how that haunts
0: <laughs> yeah and I was like <laughs> you wake oh, well. up at 3 a.m and think about it I, <laughs> yeah. I, I do oh yeah, yeah. exactly You know, it's that, what is it? It's that you remain to that girl in third grade and oh, that time I had a typo in my own bio at like four in the morning. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Not, not, uh, I, I do admire people who just don't get hung up on those things, but I'm not one of them. No, no,
1: I will. I will analyze it until the day I die. (laughs) <laughs> how could I have stopped that? How can
0: I build a time machine and
1: come back yep. and change that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or how can I walk around and pull every copy so no one sees it ever again? Forever again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting thing. Do you feel like, I mean, I, I feel like since you've been writing publicly, blogging and, and, and um, publishing articles and things like that, and then into the book. Do you have that experience? Do you have this like arc of public writing where you go back and read stuff and you're like, oh. Oh yeah,
1: all of the time. I go back, I just, I cannot describe the cringe that has been my life for the last, I, I am roughly 35 years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's just been, every time I go back and I read something, I'm, I'm shocked anew. Sometimes I'll read it and I'll go, wow, I do not give myself enough credit For the passion I have for the subjects that I study, I'll go back and read my blog and I'll see there's been multiple comments left in the interim of years that I didn't even catch. And I'll sit there and go, wow, I wrote something really good that I objectively would have liked if written the other person. And then at least 75% of the time I go in and I go, now, why the hell did I do that? Yeah. What the hell was this? What was I on? Yeah. Why did I write that? <laughs> and I get so embarrassed and I'll, I'll hyper analyze it. And then I think about, it and I'm like, you know what, this is basically proof of growth this is just people watching me evolve as a person and evolution isn't a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's your, everybody is going to have these moments. We all do them. We all catch each other doing it. And the point is to just sort of own it and go, well, this is me. I'm a human being with flaws. I'm going to say some shit I'm going to regret. And I'm going to forgive other people for that because someday I too will need forgiveness. Yes.
0: Yeah. And I think, that to me is the, the important thing to remember is it is evidence of growth not everyone has it documented so publicly right but you know i think a lot more people do with social media and it's important to remember that people can actually change like they can grow they can evolve they can you know evolve their opinions on things um and as a writer like you continue to grow as a writer if you're writing at the same level you were writing it 15 years ago that would be surprising. Exactly.
1: Growth is a good thing. I like watching people grow. I like people's watching people's opinions change. I'm sad that sometimes we live in a culture where we cannot allow that. We cannot Mm. allow people to change because that means that they flip flopped or that they're, um, you know, fair weather or that they don't know what they're talking about when the truth is, is we're humans. We have to learn. Yeah. It's it is in, it's just intrinsic to who and what we are. We, we must learn and, and get understand things differently over time. And sometimes that means looking back and seeing who you were at that moment and being like, wow, you are an unfamiliar entity. I don't know you. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's looking back and going, wow, I'm so happy at who I was. I'm glad I didn't lo- lose myself. Mm-hmm. And both things are true and both yeah. things are fine. Um, I'm glad we live in a world where I'm sad we live in a world where people get canceled um, sometimes over some of the most nonsense things. And we can kind of be hyper vigilant to Mm -hmm. the point of, of just being discriminatory towards each other and unforgiving. But I also love living in a world where we can all sort of accept that we all make these mistakes. We all have things that we are cringing at relentlessly that we have said or thought in our past. And the part of being human that I love most is the part where we learn from that and then move forward. Mm -hmm. because there can only be a forward there should only be a forward and staying stuck on the old stuff is is as much as I love old stuff like folklore and old witchcraft um I like new mentalities and I like learning new things and one of the things I've learned most about being an author is that people are are really gonna hate your guts um and let you know that Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and it's okay as long as is as long as you remember that that's just part of it that's you know the hating yourself part the hating being hated by other people the hating your old creations and looking back at those things and cringing all of that's just part of it and in the end it probably did a lot better I think just to go through the experience just to know that we were like alive and human enough to feel all of this sometimes it feels like that's worth it yeah I think, but that's just me rambling. Sorry, I got all no, no. (laughs) It is not rambling. I
0: think it's important, and I think for new writers, I think it can be shocking to find out that a lot of people who will take the time to talk about your work publicly and like in reviews and things like that will do it because they hated it. Yep.
1: And you know, you will
0: hear from people who love it, and you will have people who tell you they loved it who know you personally who will never read it. They'll just tell you they loved it, and you know, there's, it's it's you know people say don't read the reviews everybody reads them at first it's just nature to go look and see what people have to say and unfortunately a lot of people who will take the time to say something are people who are haters (laughs) yeah you got to kind of steal for that and understand that it says a lot more about them than you that they take the time to do that
1: and you know what hell thank you for taking the time to read my book
0: yeah thanks <laughs> you for your time two dollars and fifty cents that, that I got from this
1: copy <laughs> thank you for uh paying into my royalties that's cool
0: yeah it's um yeah I think it's an, an interesting thing to be in public like that because people have this idea with writers that it is some magical process that happens when you know and I've, I've talked to several writers about this. it's work writing is work it's brain work but it's work And, um, you know, it's, yes, it it is easy as a writer to be precious about things and think, oh, I'm sending my heart, soul, baby out into the world and I want the world to be nice to it. People aren't nice, always nice to your children and they're not always going to be nice to your work. I mean, it's just, that's kind of how life is, but it can be kind of heartbreaking, I think, for new authors who aren't prepared for that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I was because I had
1: at least done smaller articles within higher ed and mm-hmm. stuff. So I I was used to getting criticism, especially from like instructors, from people who yeah, you know, I really wanted to impress. So I had a thicker skin about some things. Um, but it took me about three days after it came out for me to not never see reviews again. I haven't looked at the reviews ever since. Yeah. Anywhere. I do oh, not I think it's smart. Yeah, I don't have anything to do with it because uh, to be perfectly honest, other people's like overall opinion on it didn't really matter. I didn't write it for other people. I, I wrote it specifically so that I could communicate with whoever it is wanted to communicate back. So mm-hmm. it wasn't supposed to be for everybody. It was supposed to be with, yeah. for whoever it is found an interest in it. Yeah, And I'm glad I was able to do it. And I'm glad I was able to sort of um, suck it up when my feelings did get hurt
0: yeah. um, because
1: that's going to be life, you know, king of pain and all that.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think, I don't know, you touched on something else there that I love to talk to writers about, this idea about, you know, who your audience is and what does success look like? So who do you think your audience is and what does success look like for you as a writer? My audience, I wrote for curious
1: people. I just wrote for anybody who was curious. Um, I was curious. I wanted to know more about how multiculturalism affected witchcraft and the expression of, of occultism in America. And I was curious about what other people thought. I was curious to see what would happen if I, if I said my piece about different uh, controversial subjects. I I just wanted to appeal to curious people. I didn't necessarily want to be liked or uh, loved or understood even. I just sort of wanted to know if there are other people who were speaking my language. And it mm-hmm. turns out there are a lot of people out there speaking my language. So that's who I'm talking to (laughs) y'all can understand what I am saying to you. Then I was, congratulations. We were, that's it. I was just trying to talk to you and success to me. I remember the moment I felt successful was getting a message on Instagram um, from somebody that I had been following that an artist that I really, really liked who told me that they felt seen (laughs) As a mixed person, especially as a, a, a white passing mixed person, who's American, they said, you know, that was it was so affirming to read that chapter you had about how this is just who we are. This is what we look like. We look like anything. We can be anything like what is an American, (laughs) what is, what is, you know, we should, we all have a history here and that, that history was valid regardless of what it was. And to have somebody say, you know, that really meant a lot to me to feel like, Oh, I feel seen. There's other people out there who kind of don't fit in anywhere. And we're, we're just finding our own unique path in the Mm -hmm. one that was structured right here in our country. And I was like, that to me, that was success was just having someone communicate right back to me exactly what it is I was trying to say in the first
0: place. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's powerful. It was powerful. And it's powerful every single time I hear from someone who says, Hey, I really liked your book. Um, this is my story. And it's amazing how people are like they'll they'll just share their whole family history with me and it'll be their own unique American story. And mm-hmm. I love all of them, even the the ugly parts, the brutal parts, the simple parts, the boring ones, the the outrageous stories, all of them are this beautifully unique human experience that could only ever exist in this tremendous (laughs) fruit salad um, (laughs) we call a country. Yeah,
0: I think fruit salad's a great description. (laughs) I haven't heard that. I like it. (laughs) Um, So before we get to our Game of Chance question, um, do you want to talk about current or upcoming projects will probably air late in the year january so um gives you an idea when things will happen and how readers can connect with you well uh first readers can
1: connect with me i am everywhere i'm on facebook via hedera via hedera instagram um via there on youtube that's where i do a lot of videos of folk magic that i recreate um From, you know, from just old historical records or from the Journal of American Folklore or from my own personal practices. So people can watch these really short videos of things that I'm just doing um, magically on YouTube. Uh, You can also follow my side project Trudy the Mole, (laughs) which is, you know, just sort of a, a fun toy project I do on Instagram. Um, You can follow me on ViaHidera.com, which is where I post a lot of my research, um, a lot of my art recipes, um, just all sorts of art. Um, It's where me and my illustrator both run out some of our art out of. And uh, upcoming projects to look forward to is my second book that is going to, you know, it's still a mystery project for some people, but it's about a fantastic familiar of American witches. Um, You should also look out for more artwork on Instagram, which is where I'll be posting more of my... uh, sabbat-based seasonal recipes that I've been doing. Um they've been a real hit and I'm really happy people love it. And where I always keep up on regional American folklore um and encourage people to share their regional American witchcraft with the world.
0: Great. Well we will make sure links for all that are in the show notes so people can find you and then we will roll the die and see what our question's gonna be. So Ooh. I know you've listened so you know what this is. Um, yes. So I'll roll a die. Lovely little D&D set. And um, depending on what number I get, you'll get a question about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. And if I get a six, you get to pick which one you want. Excellent. So let's see what we get today. Three, religion.
1: (laughs) My favorite thing.
0: Oh, yeah! All right. I was thinking about, like, in the book, you talk about growing up in a multi-religious household. So do you consider yourself a religious person?
1: Ooh, that is, (laughs) uh, no. And yes, I know it's so cliche for people to say the whole spiritual, not religious thing, but I would even go that far. I am deeply, I would, I think it would surprise people. No, I'm deeply skeptical. Um, a lot of practices, a lot of things I do, I know it's unpopular in the witchcraft community to uh, link magic or spirituality with psychology in any way because it, it feels invalidating. But to me, I, I'm not invalidated by the connection. I think there are things that rituals we do in life that can be both magical and psychological. They can they can affect, they can be there just for the sheer um comfort that they bring you and in my opinion that's kind of what religion is is it's people's comfort it's people's path to the mystery that Mm -hmm. none of us really knows about and can prove and um so when it comes to religion I sort of feel like well if I had to say I have a specific religion I would say no not really I mean the closest I get is being an animist I, I believe that there's a world populated by spirits and souls. I believe that there's, there's a universe populated by unseen unknowable things, but that's just the point is I don't really know. I'm just doing what makes me feel comfortable. I'm doing what mm-hmm. makes me feel happy. I'm doing my life is short and I have no idea what the hell is going to happen at the end. It could be a complete and utter mystery. It could be everything I've ever dreamed about. It could be a complete and utter nightmare, I have zero idea and I don't have any desire to find an absolute answer either. I kind of just want to live what little small blip of life I have in this giant, uncaring, frozen universe that's billions and billions of years older than me and billions and billions of times larger than my soul or my life could ever be. And so for that short amount of time, I want to just do whatever makes me feel comfortable so I wouldn't say it's a religion as much as it's just me trying to live. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I would consider myself religious. I just have very good ideas. Yeah. I think
0: that's a line from a movie. Yeah. Very.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Um, very, yeah. Dogma. Yeah. I know, I know a lot of witches and um, agnostic types who got a lot out of that movie. Funnily enough. Um, <laughs> definitely. But I, I, you touched on the skepticism and I always, you know, I hesitate to always ask people if they're skeptic because I think some people don't want to talk about it. But, you know, I have a core skepticism too, but I think at the same time, like you said, it's not, it doesn't negate my practice. It doesn't negate what I believe. I think it just keeps me safe in many ways. Yes, I, I I need
1: skepticism.
0: I need my doubt. I believe
1: mm-hmm. doubt and skepticism is is that is a, a propulsion for evolution. I don't ever want to believe in something so much that I am blind. Mm-hmm. So I don't really consider myself uh, like a believer in anything. I, I wouldn't say I believe in all of this. I would say I practice what I practice and I do what I do. Mm-hmm. I feel what I feel and I have all these ideas, but You know, beliefs are dangerous. Beliefs tell you what you want to hear. It is self-serving. It is, you know, it's wish fulfillment. And I don't ever want to believe in anything so much that I lose myself and I lose my sense of, of center. And to me, I feel like reality you know, is pretty clear. There's gravity, there's physics, there's chemistry, there's the world of, of that can be explained by these different scientific principles that are no less magical simply because they were explained scientifically. It's still mm. magical to me. The birth of a baby is magic to me. Mm. You know, people, people getting through the things that they do every day can be magical to me. Um, so I, I really embrace the skepticism because I like I like doubting. I like wondering if I'm right. I, that's why I like talking to people and knowing if I'm wrong. That's why I like making friends with people who don't share my political or religious opinions because mm-hmm. I always want to be challenged. I want to know. I want to hear it all so that at the end of the day, if I still stick with what I believe in or what I think I believe in or what I think I feel or anything like that, at least I know that I had options and mm-hmm. I chose what was right for me.
0: Mm-hmm. You examined those. Yes. Yeah. No, I think so. And I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I look at certain elements of our culture in the United States that I think people have lost their skepticism and it has pulled them in some pretty ugly places. And so I I do feel like um, that ability to examine what you believe or what you think to be true is important and it's part of being an adult.
1: Yes, so. it's part of being a, a, a human. I mm-hmm. don't want to be right. And I don't want to live in a place or be around people who all think like me. I yeah. want to be challenged. I can't imagine anything more boring than spending my life around everybody who thinks and acts and talks and looks like me. That's mm-hmm. That sounds unbearably bland. I mean, I love <laughs> me, but damn.
0: <laughs> I don't want a world want entirely an, populated world with for me. Everything's
1: a little different.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, like you said, it's one of the beautiful things about being here in this time and space is that we are in a fruit salad. Yes. I am going to steal that and use it all the time now. Um,
1: <laughs> we are in a fruit <laughs> salad and we should enjoy it. So I agree. I really love a good fruit salad.
0: <laughs> yep. yep. Awesome. Well, Bea, thank you so much for being on the show. I've so enjoyed our conversation and I can't wait for the next book. Thank
1: you so much. I appreciate you inviting me. This has been great. I love this podcast and I encourage
0: everybody to share this and listen to it. Thank you. That um oh that makes my heart sing. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so excited. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Kaifel Agostini. Our music is voices by Alexander Shinekar. You can support our work. At ko fi.com slash witchlitpodcast. And if you'd like to submit your own death, sex, religion, politics, or money questions, or have questions or comments about the show, you can send an email to Victoria at witchlitpod.com. And please be sure to let us know if we can use your name on the show. Transcripts and all our previous episodes are available at witchlitpod.com. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at witchlitpod. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and consider giving us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other witches find the show. Thanks for listening and for reading Witchy.